Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, hello, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to begin today's episode by just saying thank you, as I did. And if you've been enjoying the episode so far, feel free to write a review, give it a five-star rating, and share it with your friends. How you feeling today, Dad? Okay, I suppose, yes. <laughs> Are you flying anywhere important and top secret today? No, not anywhere important or top secret, just flying. Just flying. Are you sure it's nowhere top secret? Let's continue, because we cannot discuss it. Okay. Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast, co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover, thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. Without further ado... Let's dive into today's episode. Spy genius or fraud, Richard Meinhertzhagen. October 10th, 1917. Richard Meinhertzhagen, head of intelligence for the British forces in the Middle East, tall and powerful at six foot five, gallops his horse away from Turkish Ottoman forces pursuing him. His pursuers stopping their chase after about a mile Meinhertzhagen dismounts and fires off a few shots at them, spurring them into action once more, just as he'd hoped. Writing in his diary later, Now was my chance, and in my effort to mount, I loosened my haversack, field glasses, water bottle, dropped my rifle, previously stained with some fresh blood from my horse, and, in fact, did everything to make them believe I was hit, and that my flight was disorderly. They had now approached close enough, and I made off dropping the haversack. Escaping and watching from afar, Meinhertzhagen spots his former pursuers lifting the haversack to discover the prize inside that was carefully orchestrated for them to find. Meinhertzhagen writing, I now went like the wind for home and soon gave them the slip, well satisfied with what I had done and that my deception had been successful. Thus, cementing the legend of the haversack ruse which along with other deceptions, directly led to British victory in the Middle East in World War I and the legend of Richard Meinhertzhagen. Or so perhaps Meinhertzhagen would have us all believe. What do you make of this haversack ruse? I think up to now we've discussed about intelligence from a different angle, and this is a different angle about intelligence, and this is how you plant information, how you create a camouflage 
where you use intelligence to benefit your situation on the battleground. And up till now, I don't think we've had any episode really that deals with that element and aspect of it. And I think it will be interesting to discuss because what it means of preparing it and doing it. Well, we did actually discuss aspects of this in Sun Tzu with the dead spy idea and planting false information. And we even mentioned the Haversack ruse way back then in, in brief. But never in an actual case. Of course, we never actually studied this. And this is one of the famous acts yes. that triggered a whole bunch of things, as we will come to know. If I'm not mistaken, actually, this was it was his second attempt what you're describing now. I think he had another attempt earlier that was not successful. Well, we'll get to that, won't we? Okay. We will start at the beginning, as we often do, on March 3rd, 1878, when Richard Meinhardshagen was born. He was born into a wealthy aristocratic family. His father was the head of a merchant banking dynasty, Frederick Huth and Company. It was of German descent, but English through and through. His mother was in fact tied to English aristocracy. His whole family was actually very well connected and well married, siblings and relatives in positions of importance. Now, remember, he was born into the world of 1878, quite a different world than we're living in today. This is a world of European dominance, of colonies, of monarchs, a pre-World War I world order, where the nobility and the class system was thriving in Europe. The U.S. Civil War had only ended 13 years before Richard Meinhardt-Hagen's birth, and the first telephone call happened only two years before, in 1876. The first light bulb was in fact invented the same year of Meinhardt-Hagen's birth, 1878. It was a time of change and adventure, a vast world opening up, to the landed elite, certainly. Richard Meinhardt-Hagen was educated in posh schools, going to boarding school in Aesgarth School, then Fonthill Sussex, and then to Harrow School, the same school that Churchill attended. In fact, they were classmates. Churchill, four years his senior at Harrow. It was at this time that Richard Meinhardt-Hagen developed a love for birdwatching, which would serve him his whole life, along with his brother, with the encouragement from family friend, philosopher Herbert Spencer, and of course, a little-known guy you may have heard of, Charles Darwin, also a family friend. Spencer would often take Richard Meinhardt-Hagen on walks to observe nature and study the habits of birds. And of course, with company like Charles Darwin, father of evolution, you might in fact develop an interest in animals and the natural world. And of course, far, far away places and exotic places and to discover and find places and find new things. That was always exciting. At 18, as per his father's wishes, Meinhardt-Hagen became a clerk in the family bank. Yes, you heard that correctly, in the family bank. Remember, this is a very wealthy family. And he was assigned to offices in Germany. He learned German there, picked it up quite easily, but he did not take to banking. And in 1897, he went back to the bank's home office in England. There, he joined the Hampshire Yeomanry, which was a volunteer cavalry unit. With his father's approval, he joined them. And in 1911, he also married a woman named Armorell, the daughter of the commander of the Hampshire Yeomanry. That's what you did those days. Yes. It's interesting that you remark that he took his father's advice. I find that interesting. Do you? Yes. We were actually speaking about advice the other day, weren't we? Yes. Was there anything you wanted to say about that or just... Take my advice and continue. Ah, okay. Very good. With no desire for a career in banking, Meinhardt Hagen passed his examinations to be commissioned for the British Army, completing training before being assigned as a second lieutenant to the Royal Fusiliers. And on January 18th, 1899, he was sent to India. 
He was off to India, as uh, was said in a movie I liked growing up. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yes. Off to India. See the Maharaja. Yes. In India, he immediately took to the sport of big game hunting, which would also follow him for the rest of his life. Just assume that everywhere he went, he was hunting and dictating what birds he saw and drawing illustrations. That followed him everywhere. He performed his soldiering duties, as was required of him, and eventually got sick in India, as does happen to a lot of Brits who travel to India with a little bit of Delhi belly and so on, and he was sent back to England to recover. Afterwards, he was reassigned to Burma, where he was promoted to a lieutenant in February 8th of 1900. There, he started campaigning to be sent to Africa, where a lot of Brits wanted to go, falling in love with the majesty of Africa and the exoticism of it. Can you relate, Dad? Yes, we can. <laughs> After all, you did study Africa, as we mentioned in the last episode. Yes, as I did. As part of your degree. Yes. In April of 1902, he finally got his wishes and was sent to Mombasa, Kenya. Are you familiar with Kenya at all? I am. Okay, good. Minor Tagen was deployed as part of the 3rd Battalion of the King's African Rifles, arriving in May of 1903. As a staff officer, Minor Tagen regarded himself as a scientist explorer first, and only incidentally a soldier. His detailed maps and drawings proved extremely valuable. As I said, everywhere he went, he was jotting down the different species he shot and saw. Mainly yes. shot. <laughs> yes. Shot first and then saw. Yes. Shot him first, then did the detailed things and whatnot. Bear in mind, we must remember the time period, of yes. course. yes. He conducted an animal census of the Serengeti and the Athi Plains, while, of course, hunting those very same animals. In April 1903, Meinhard wrote in his diary, which he kept throughout the entire period, I had a splendid view of Kilimanjaro early this morning. The huge snowfields were clearly visible. It does seem a shame that this wonderful mountain should have been given to Germany. But I do not doubt we shall eventually get it. We seem to get most of what we want, eventually. I think that's quite a, a charming little diary entry, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes, and he's right about he's, the view from Kilimanjaro. Yes, a beautiful view in Kilimanjaro, but yes. it speaks to his character, doesn't it? Yes. And of the time, one must remember that... Everything was changeable. Everything was changeable, and certainly the gentry of that time viewed themselves in this very conquering, can-do, dashing... Yes, can achieve British anything. Was, the British Empire was an empire. It was, and it was the yes. height of its yes. empire powers. In 1902 to 1903, rebellions and uprisings from local chiefs and tribes began to pop up all over Kenya. They were, of course, not so fond of the British rule. And Richard Meinhardt Hagen was establishing relations with other local chiefs who were more favorable. Conflicts inevitably popped up when taxes were being imposed, and Meinhard Sagan, being charged with collecting these taxes, was quite harsh in seeing that he got them. In fact, in one such instance of a village resisting, he ordered his soldiers to burn it at night without warning, leading to many deaths. Already thinking with his head, if not nobly, but from his perspective, this was the correct thing to do. Other tactics to quell the uprisings and troublesome tribes included taking their livestock, essentially becoming cattle rustlers. Meinhard Sagan became very adept at this, and in 1904, he participated in one particular raid that took over 11,000 cattle, resulting in three British dead, 33 wounded, and some 1,500 Africans dead. That's a lot of cattle and a lot of dead. We must remember the time, as I will often say in this episode. Nairobi, then the capital, and still the capital, 
had one hotel and one shop selling ammo and tin food. There were no roads, none of that. And Miner Tegan would often travel for 20 to 30 miles a day across dangerous wilderness, obviously fully armed. There was no room for weakness, no room for vulnerability. After a white trader was murdered in a particularly brutal way, Miner Tegan launched attacks on other villages and burned them too, sparing only the children, killing hundreds. Later, in another attack, Miner Tegan ordered that no women or children be harmed. Nonetheless, three of his soldiers killed a woman and two children. Miner Tegan's response was shooting those soldiers on the spot. Then, he buried the murdered villagers, but left those soldiers to the hyenas and vultures. Writing, The lesson to be taught was discipline. Two of the men whom I shot, I personally liked. Very interesting comment. What did do? What I wonder what he would do when he doesn't like, like, right? What does he do when he doesn't like you? Well, we're going to find out momentarily, aren't yes. we? Yes. But that, from my point of view, it shows the character. It shows he is very, I'll put it in a different words. He was left to make decisions by himself. And you see for a long time now that he's on the field. Well, it wasn't he like makes, there was a telephone. No, but it wasn't like there was a big, someone he had to respond to or, or give answers to or there was someone higher than him on the battlefield. He was very he was used to making decisions on the spot and executing them and believing that he understands what is necessary to be done. Now that's a character that you start developing and then when you go, get later in life it it takes you to different places, but you can see the roots over there where actually you're built in a way where you are expected to make the decisions on the ground, and you don't have to account to it to anyone. To execute your own people, even though you like them, not sure that that's exactly the spirit of today, for sure. No. But even Again, in those days, have to it look was at quite the time extreme. Period. And the fact he was even willing to write it down in his diary shows that he felt that he did the right thing. Well, we'll talk about the diary as well later, because okay. let's just say we may not take everything he writes with 100% honesty. But even if he didn't, just to write that stuff down as he did shows something. Right. This is not today's armies. No. I mean, you go back to Roman times, let's say, and a commander tells the soldiers to do something and they disobey and he kills three of them. No one's going to blink an eye because we think it's so far removed and it makes sense, discipline, all that kind of stuff. We talked about Sun Tzu even, remember his trick with the courtesans, the chief courtesan, do the drills, didn't listen, killed the courtesan. These are things that we, because they're far removed, we think are okay. But this is also far removed. This is still a different time period. Right. As far as that time period was concerned, Meinhard Tegen and all of the officers were from the upper gentry. And all of the soldiers were basically... Not, you know, they they were were usable. And you had to discipline them harshly and you had to follow these orders. And so long as he had justification, you can't just kill them for nothing. As far as he's concerned, they disobeyed a direct order. Yes. Right. And you can't have that. Right. Certainly in a dangerous place like this. Yep. February of 1905, he was promoted to the rank of captain. So clearly his superiors were happy with the results he was doing. Meinhardtagen then dealt a decisive blow to the Nandi tribe, who was offering resistance to the British presence. Inviting the Nandi tribe leaders to a meeting to negotiate on October 19, 1905, Meinhardtagen shot them point-blank while shaking hands with them, extracting a hidden revolver and doing the deed. Very sneaky. His troops then killing the entourage of the tribal leaders. Not very nice. Pretty clever, though. Effective, but not nice. Effective, not nice. Okay. Let's see what happens. Using his head. Let's see what happens. From his point of view. 
Minor Tegan covered up what happened and initially was commended for the action. Then, however, the truth was revealed and Minor Tegan claimed that he was acting in self-defense, that the tribal leaders were going to spear him, and that's when he shot. After three inquiries, he was eventually cleared of any charges of wrongdoing. Incidentally, Minor Tegan also collected tribal artifacts from the Nandi, including a walking stick belonging to the Nandi leader, Kitalel, which was eventually returned to Kenya in 2006. So, even though he writes some things in his journal which we have to take with a grain of salt, let's say, other things clearly happened. He clearly did this. Yes. Now, one could argue that's um, not quite cricket, as the British like to say, not quite an honorable thing to do, but it had to be done at the time and he thought that was the best way to go about it. It certainly saved British lives. Yes. That said, in May of 1906, Meinhard Tegan was removed from Africa by pressure from the colonial department as he had become a negative symbol. Too cruel. You know, he was effective. He did what they wanted. Clearly, he was getting promoted. He was yielding the results they wanted. But you can't leave a person like that. No. Certainly, when a situation is quelled, you also want calmer, maybe less controversial figures. figures there. He returned with much more money than his army wages were meant to give him. This was essentially due to, you guessed it, his hunting, mainly from ivory sales that he did at the time. This was the boom of hunting and animal trophies and sales and all this kind of stuff, and he was an avid hunter. And also during this whole time, he's also writing down the different birds that he saw and collecting bird samples and all these different things, which... As we get to later in the episode, we'll see he amasses quite an extensive collection of all this stuff, which he eventually donates. Leaving Africa, he reflected on his time there, saying that he witnessed what he deemed was unjust treatment of the Kikuyu and Maasai tribes. He predicted in his diary that the colonial office and settlers were sowing the seeds for future trouble, foreseeing issues that certainly manifested themselves in Africa against the colonial rule later. Writing, I said that someday the African would be educated and armed, and that would lead to a clash. God knows there will be enough trouble here in 50 years when the natives get educated. In a hundred years, there may be 50 white settlers and 5 million discontented, envious natives. Can the white man hold out against numbers without terrific slaughter? His prediction was true. Absolutely. He ends his diary of that period in 1906, writing... I fear my tour is marked by continuous violence and the slaughter of my fellow men and wild animals. Make of that what you will, I suppose. He did what he did. He was a soldier and he did his duty and he did right. it well. Yes. In 1906, he was assigned to a war office desk job, but using his contacts and his network, eventually his name was rehabilitated and he joined the Fusiliers 3rd Battalion in South Africa, serving there in 1908 through 1909, then Mauritius, and finally, in 1913, he was assigned again to India. What do you make of his African expedition and his opinion on the matters there and reflections? Well, you could see that he had an understanding of what's going on and what might happen because he was in direct contact with the people. And he had to make decisions on the ground, as I said. And uh, it's interesting, he, he traveled to all these places that are, you know, not always, there's not easy postings, you could say. It's not just... He's not sitting in the headquarters, he's running around. But I think his passion to document uh, wild animals and see new places was fascinating for him. And he mapped the places. areas as well. Yes. He was traveling these places that were not well documented, not exactly. well mapped. 
and he was doing these very detailed drawings yes. of the areas. And it was unique. It yeah. was it was new stuff. It, it was probably fascinating for him. It was and, an undiscovered world. And of course, though we're focusing on perhaps some of the more brutal treatments of different things, he also did make contact with the Maasai, were much more collaborative with the British and cooperative. And with them, he had good relations. So I think we do see that in his reflections on Africa afterwards. Yes. Again, a man of his time. Yes. Have to remember this. That said, his reflections were, you know, we really shouldn't be here and we're causing ourselves terrible lot of trouble. But as I'm here, I might as well. I think yep. maybe is a summary of modern day approach. And of course, he used his head to solve problems, which we see as well. In a brutal way, certainly, but yep. an effective way. Everything, of course, changed at the start of World War I. Meinhard Hagen was posted to the intelligence staff in the British Indian Expeditionary Force. There, his map making was highly valued. In 1915 to 1916, he served as the chief of military intelligence for the East African Theater in Nairobi, being reassigned. There, mapping and gathering intelligence of unknown and poorly mapped areas, as we just said. This also was invaluable. He also set up intelligence scouts, traveling around, gathering information from different tribes and different locals, and also about movements of the enemies. There, it was said that he also discovered and dismantled the German spy network, understanding their movements and positions in the area. Is going back to his, his uh, comments about uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, getting the Germans out of that area. Yes. The Germans ruled uh, Tanganyika at the time, and uh, he wanted them out. So that was part of the work. Yes. September of 1915, he was promoted to the rank of major. So again, clearly, the military brass likes what he's doing. He's doing a good job. He's uh, efficient. He's not, a, he's not a banker anymore. He's not a banker anymore. That is true. He is far removed from his banking. In 1916, he also famously led a night attack in Tanganyika, now Tanzania, against a German encampment. He loved to recount this tale of having crept into the German encampment with his troops, where he killed an officer in his tent and then sat down and tucked into the officer's Christmas meal. Why waste that good dinner, he writes in his diary. All the other Germans in the camp were eliminated. T.E. Lawrence, of Lawrence of Arabia fame, even expands that he went in with the club that he took from the Nandi and used that against the Germans. So, brutal but effective. Yes. These clubs were used to hunt lions as well. At least the Maasai used clubs to hunt lions as a rite of passage. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order in February of 1916. So, after this attack, successfully eliminating them. Say what you will about him, he was a man who did stuff. Yes. Around this time, he was also wounded, but made a full recovery. Then, later in 1916, he was transferred to the Middle East, to what is now modern Israel, to fight against what was then Ottoman-controlled and German-backed Palestine. He was appointed to be the head of intelligence for British forces in the Middle East. Head of intelligence, that is a big position. And what he has to do is to make sure that the British are able to conquer Palestine. So how do you do it? Let us see. Well, he made contact first and foremost with Nili, which was a Jewish spy network. And he worked with them to get information from the Ottoman army and produce maps and data of positions of movement and enemy forces. In October of 1917, however, the Ottoman Turks managed to break apart the Nili spy network, and Meinhard Hagen's sources became limited, and he had to come up with a different plan to defeat his enemy. This is where we get the famous Haversack ruse. But why did we even need the Haversack ruse? There were a number of attempts to take Gaza, and uh, they wasn't so successful, and they found that they didn't have enough information. So they had to come up with a plan of how 
to make the enemy think that they're going for one place and then the enemy will put all its forces in that area or most of its forces to that area and actually then do a maneuver to take the other place and then by doing that they will be able to weaken and clear the way to go into Jerusalem because Alambi's forces were in Egypt and they needed a gateway into Palestine and from there to go towards Jaffa and into Jerusalem. And there was two ways to go there, through Gaza and through Beersheba. So the prize was, of course, Jerusalem. Yes. Allenby was the general of the British forces there. Egypt is to the south of Jerusalem and Gaza and Beersheba. And to get to Jerusalem, you first have to pass Gaza, then Beersheba, then you get to Jerusalem. It doesn't take 40 years to wander from Egypt into Israel, as Moses unfortunately didn't discover. But nonetheless, if they wanted to get to Jerusalem, they had to go through these positions, which were held by Turkish and German forces. Gaza and Beersheba, very heavily fortified. Two failed direct attacks by the British against Gaza had failed. And as they were in the south, they needed a solution. Would they circumvent it, go to Beersheba, then their water supply lines would be very limited? What were they going to do? And so, the Haversack ruse was invented. The plan was that inside the Haversack that was to be discovered by the Germans would be documents indicating a plan to do a third attack against Gaza. The forces, this way, enemy forces would be expecting the attack and be so focused there, they wouldn't know about the actual attack being planned against Beersheba, which had water and wells and all this kind of stuff that they could then utilize and cut off the enemy supply lines. But that was remember as well, because they were going on horses. It wasn't like on, on, on fuel. So they needed a place so the horses could drink and uh, relax and do whatever they have to do. Yes, this is a difficult terrain without much yes. infrastructure yes. then. Yes. But that wasn't the only thing inside the haversack. In order to make the ruse truly work, many other things were inside this haversack. So in October of 1917, two attempts were made by riders to lure Turkish forces into pursuit in order for them to drop the haversack. However, neither time yielded much result. Until the third time, Meinhard Hagen stepping up and doing the deed himself, succeeding as I documented in the opening drama. The haversack also contained cipher codes for secret messages that would be sent later specifically with those same codes so that they would see and intercept them, easily decoding them to see that they were deprioritizing attacks on Beersheba with intention to attack Gaza for the third time. Also inside the haversack were complaints showing that the British leadership were complaining about the repeated failure to take Gaza and they needed to keep on attacking until they succeeded. British pride of never surrender, you know. All that. There was also a map with a big arrow pointing at Gaza inside the haversack, as well as communications and thoughts about Beersheba being unconquerable, notes about water shortages and logistics issues, emphasizing that the British were unable to sustain a large force for a long time, so they needed to do this right away. Finally, the cherry on top, the pierre d'existence, the creme de la creme, was an officer letter from a wife about a newborn child. Really selling the whole thing of authenticity here. Of course, with a blood smear from the wounded officer. Adding also to the authenticity of the missing haversack was a notice sent to the Desert Mounted Corps informing them of the lost haversack, a request to return it, a patrol sent out to find and recover it, and the officer in charge of this patrol throwing away sandwiches wrapped in a copy of this bogus operational order to retrieve the haversack. All this ruse to fool the enemy. What do you make of all this? It's very clever, and it's a very unique, at the time it was very unique, because you had to make sure that the other side, first of all, picked up the clues, understood them, and reacted to them. And then you have to build up a story behind it to make sure that it makes sense to the other side, 
that it gets to the right people on the other side and it's just lost or looted or just someone, a soldier, takes it and doesn't know what to do with it. Hence the first two failures and the third one with the, the pursuit. They didn't, and, they didn't yeah. pursue them. They didn't run, go after them. And, and they have to make sure why would it make sense that there'll be someone moving around with this kind of information. Now you would say, who would walk around with this information? But in those days, that's how it used to be. The courier used to go around and travel around and, and take these messages. Of course, it wasn't 100% proof it would work. But in this case, he had to try something, and he took credit for it, and according to him, it worked. Yes. Well, the proof is in the pudding in that the, the British, spoiler, World War I was won by the British and French and the Allied forces. No, but in case they said But the, also specifically here. The battle to, for, for Beersheba was Beersheba won. was succeeded. That yes. was the attack that happened yes. next, and they succeeded, and later yes. Gaza fell, and they were in Jerusalem by Christmas. Correct. However... The Haversack documents were taken to the German commander, von Kressenstein, who, it is claimed, doubted the authenticity of them, according to an account by a Turkish colonel. Meinhardt's Hagen's name sounded German, and it was confusing to them. Why would a British officer have a German name? His name, of course, appearing on the commands being part of the intelligence of it. Von Kressenstein later wrote, The English knew they could not begin a large campaign after the beginning of the rainy season. There could be no doubt that the attack on Beersheba and Gaza was to begin very soon. I was sure the information of the satchel must be dismissed as fake. So he claims. That said, there were no changes in German-Turkish positions in the weeks leading up to the British attack. No reinforcements either. So what effect did it have? It's difficult to know. What is known is the legacy that this plan had and the effect that made. Yes, I think that's the most important thing, that you're now thinking of planting information to the other side, not just gathering information, understanding what the other side is doing, but try and manipulate their thinking. And I think that was a new way of thinking from the point of view of the British intelligence at the time, that they used very, you'd say, very carefully and very uh, wisely in the Second World War. But it was based on traditions of, okay, it works, it can work, we have to build a good plan, we have to build up a story. Again, writing a letter, having a real person or not a real person. In the Second World War, of course, you know, it, it, it was a body and there were yeah, other Operation issues. Operation Mincemeat, they sent so, the body, yes. people found so there was, it. Yeah. And there was other little clues all over the place. But it, it all starts from here, and I think that's the interesting thing about it. I wouldn't say start, but it's it's reignited well, it, it, here. Yes. You know, this idea of deception techniques taking a, a large center stage. And, and part and the, of that, and I like the fact that they even sent another patrol to see and recover it. Yeah, you know, it's clever. It wasn't, you know, just dropping it off and that's it, but making them see that they're looking for it. Yeah, not just that. The the extra patrol, the fact they sent an encoded message with the same yes. so code. They, it, it, it was things. a whole package behind it. It wasn't just one act. It was an operation, and here you see an intelligence operation to make the other side think there's something else happening. And I think that was a very interesting thing yes. to do. And when the attack on Beersheba did happen instead of on Gaza, it's not that they just attacked Beersheba. They bombed Gaza first from, from the sea and, and did different moves as if they were about to attack it like they had done previously. Correct. All the while, the light horse regiments from Australia and New Zealand primarily Correct. Correct. were traversing across the desert to take Beersheba. Very difficult trek through the desert with no water. It was uh, very arduous. But they did all these things to divert attention. And again, how effective was it? Did the German command 100% know it was fake or suspected it was fake? Even if you suspect it's fake, what if it's not? If you read as well some of the memories of the soldiers who fought in the 1917 war from Australia and New Zealand, actually they do mention this as well about this plot. So it wasn't just something that was 
in his mind and he wrote it down. It actually did happen. Oh, yeah, it absolutely happened. Yes. Now, not only that, Winston Churchill was later inspired by these events. Remember, yes. he was a fellow classmate of Meinhard Hagen, so... Same school. Same school, yes, same school. This eventually leading to, as I mentioned a moment ago, Operation Mincemeat and the forming of the London Controlling Section devoted to acts of deception. As we said, the attack on Beersheba was a success, later Gaza falling, and Jerusalem by Christmas. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, here's the question mark on this whole story. The participation of Meinhard Hagen directly in this is refuted. Supposedly, he didn't actually plan or execute this ruse. Brian Garfield, in his book, The Minor Tagen Mystery, proves that Lieutenant Colonel J.D. Belgrave came up with the idea, and Arthur Neat was the writer who dropped the haversack. Arthur Neat was actually on active duty when Meinhard Sagan made the claims that he had done it, so he couldn't refute them until 1956, when he was finally off duty, and went on record to refute the deeds. Lieutenant Colonel J.D. Belgrave never did refute the claims because, unfortunately, he was killed on June 13th of 1918. Nonetheless, Meinhard Sagan was the head of intelligence, so even if Lieutenant Colonel J.D. Belgrave came to him with this idea of planting false information, it would have been developed by Meinhard Sagan, spoken with and thought about together, all this kind of stuff. The actual deed themselves, well, can't refute it if he didn't actually do it. Makes a good story, though. Well, someone had to write it, someone had to read it. It made more sense for him to put himself in the front. So he'd say, okay, I made a couple of adjustments, but... Maybe he was the second writer, not the third, in reality. Who knows? Who didn't succeed. The point is, it did happen, and he was involved in it, even if he wasn't directly the one responsible for coming up with the idea. And I would say that he shouldn't have been the writer. No, it wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It It makes sense for his character, but not for actual military operations. Right, unless you, you, you run out of people and you're desperate. But that shouldn't have been the reason to do it. Other acts of espionage attributed to Meinhard Hagen by himself and some others is that he is said to have caught Arab spies trying to pass British lines in disguise, extracting from them the information about their Ottoman spymaster, who was a merchant in Beersheba. 
Meinhard Sagan then sent a letter to the merchant thanking him for the valuable information and supposed services he'd rendered for the British, along with a large reward in Turkish currency. Of course, this merchant never did anything for the British. But the Turkish Ottoman forces didn't know that. And intercepting the letter with this huge amount of thanks and money, they believed that their best spy suddenly was a double agent, or at least an informant for the British, promptly executing him. This same technique, apparently, was used by Meinhard Hagen in East Africa earlier in the war. This is pretty clever. Yes. This is already being active. And that's what we talked about, about active intelligence. It's what we call in intelligence, what do you do with information? Do you sit on it or you are active about it? You know that someone else is a, is a mastermind behind some stuff. Do you just collect about him? Do you, do you actually try and do something so that you stop him from continuing his work? So do you do it yourself? Do you put a trap? Do you put him in a light that maybe his people that he was working for will decide to stop him from working? Obviously, they had a decision. They could have said, you know what, let's continue just to collect and see what's going on and send someone to be there with him. Or let's eliminate him and let the other side think that he works for us. And that's a better solution. Again, active intelligence. They let the enemy do the deed for them. Yes. Another story of Meinhard Hagen's planning and espionage and intelligence use is that he learned from captive Turkish soldiers that they had a shortage of tobacco. Remember back then, well, like today, everyone smokes cigarettes in the army. And so he arranged to airdrop propaganda leaflets wrapped around cigarettes over enemy trenches every night, as well as packages of cigarettes, enticing the enemy to surrender. But that was just the first part. Because before the third attack on Gaza, Meinhard Hagen had cigarettes airdropped laced with opium. Now, General Allenby, who was the head of the British forces, disapproved of the plan, saying it was too close to poisoning the enemy. Meinhard Hagen did it anyway, believing any action to save friendly lives was justified. And after the battle, of course, he had to sample one of the opium-laced cigarettes, saying, They were indeed strong. The effect was sublime. Complete abandonment, all energy gone, lovely dreams, and complete inability to act or think. The full effect of the plan is difficult to gauge. However, records do show that after capture, many of the Turkish soldiers appeared lethargic, befuddled, and barely coherent. Well, the seeds of chemical warfare? Question mark? I wouldn't say that, but I would say you have information about a weakness, and you decide how to exploit it. And that's a clever way. I mean, you have to buy the tobacco, you have to airlift it, you have to send it, you have to make sure they get it. You have to have someone to do it. You have to have a lab to do it. You have to have opium. You have to have opium. So this is not just, uh, you know, okay, let's do it, guys. This is a much bigger operation. Someone had to authorize it. Someone had to say it's okay. Even, you know, just uh, dropping it off with the airplanes. But the ability to do it, I think that's, that's fascinating. To that, come up with the idea. To come up with the idea and actually execute it and actually have the results that it wanted to have. Again, we don't know the direct results, but all of these things contributed to the British victory in modern-day Israel, then Palestine, against and if the you, Turkish. And him as a hell of intelligence, you see that he is, the way he's thinking, is thinking in an active way and creative. And that is very interesting. As World War I drew to an end... Meinhard Hagen was promoted twice, in March of 1918 and then again in August of 1918, eventually to reach the rank of Brevet Colonel. He was reassigned back to England, doing jury office work, and traveled between England and France, lecturing on intelligence to officers. Clearly, they valued his opinion 
and his services. Correct. In 1919, he also divorced his first wife. After the armistice, signaling the end of World War I, he was assigned to the Paris Peace Conference. The post-World War I British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, sang of Meinhard's Hagen that, He struck me as one of the ablest and most successful brains I had met in any army. That was quite sufficient to make him suspect and to hinder his promotion to the higher ranks of his profession. Interesting first sentence and even more interesting second sentence, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes. Sometimes it's dangerous to be uh, out there and put your head out. Well, he was a man who ruffled feathers. I mean, Allenby disapproved of the thing. He did it anyway. Yielded results, did things maybe questionably, shot from the hip, but... He was a person who thought he knew better than others what has to be done. And he often did. And often did. And he goes back to what we said in the beginning when he was by himself making decisions and making them work for him and used his instinct for it. At this time, in 1918, Meinhard Hagen also writes in his diaries that he rescued the Grand Duchess Tatiana from Russia, writing, She was much bruised and brought to England, where she still is. Too dangerous to give details. He also wrote that he saved a terrified girl from a drop after a train crash in Greece. Both of these stories are extremely questionable. But you never know, right? You're right. Why is there a twinkle in your eyes? Do you know something that I don't? Russian nobility hiding somewhere? No. In 1921, he was appointed by Churchill, yes, that Churchill, as military advisor to the Middle East Department. He was, of course, a fellow Harrow pupil. Meinhard Hagen saying of Churchill that he fancied himself the Duke of Marlborough and had to be managed, claiming that he knew how to do so. Drawing rebuke from Churchill, who said of Meinhard Hagen, Please caution Colonel Meinhard Hagen that he is not to express to the war office opinions in regard to military matters contrary to my policy. He had a man of his own. Yes. Yes. Meinhard Hagen's final view on Churchill was strongly positive. He has a brilliant mind and is quick as lightning, acting largely by instinct, usually right, a hard master, tremendously hardworking himself, and expecting the same from his staff. He uh, found a kindred spirit in Churchill, I think. Yes. 1921, he married his second wife, Annie, the daughter of a major. She was an ornithologist, like himself, fascinated with birds and all those species. They had three children together. But in 1926, their relationship began to cool, and Meinhard Hagen became close with his cousin, Tess, who was then only 15, Meinhard Hagen 48 at the time. Then, two years later, in July of 1928, three months after the birth of their final child, his second wife, Annie, 40, died under strange circumstances, let's call them. In a remote Scottish village that was her home village, in a shooting accident, Annie shot herself in the head during target practice while she was alone with Meinhard Hagen. Again, author Brian Garfield suspects that Meinhard Hagen may not be telling the whole truth here and that, in fact, Meinhard Hagen may have killed her, fearing that she'd expose his fraudulent ornithology activities. You see, during this time, as we said, he's been collecting different birds throughout different countries, but he may have also been stealing some from museums and appropriating them from other people and mislabeling different stuff. There was already a question regarding theft of bird specimens that had been raised but covered up by influential friends. It's claimed, perhaps, that Annie was threatening to reveal these fraudulent activities. No inquest was held over the murder or death of Annie. However, a physician's report did say that Annie was killed by a shot fired on a downward trajectory. 
not the easiest thing to do if she is the one who pulled the trigger. And let's remember, Meinhard Hagen was six foot five inches tall. Meinhard Hagen never remarried. He remained close with his cousin Tess. He lived in an adjacent building to her with an internal passage connecting them. Tess was essentially his housekeeper, secretary, confidant, and later scientific partner. A physical relationship between them is unknown, but alluded to strongly. Minor Tegan also wrote that in 1934, 1935, and 1939 that he met and had encounters with Hitler. Yes, that Hitler. The first of which Minor Tegan writes in his diary that he met Hitler, and Hitler met him, and greeted him with a Nazi salute of Heil Hitler. Minor Tegan confused before applying Heil Minor Tegan. Good for him. Good for him. In another meeting, he claims to have smuggled a revolver into Hitler's office, saying that he had the chance to shoot him and later lamented that he hadn't, writing he was seriously troubled about not shooting him when he had the chance, and that if war broke out, as he was sure it would, that he would feel very much to blame for not killing him. There are, however, no records of such meetings, documents showing that Hitler was not even in Berlin on any date that Meinhard Hagen claims to have met him there. In 1939-1940, World War II, Minor Tagen was reinstated as a lieutenant colonel in military intelligence, working mainly in PR for the war office. However, he was also wounded while participating in the Dunkirk evacuations in 1940. So even at the end, he, a uh, man of action and yes. all, all arms and, and all this stuff. All in all, Minor Tagen received nine British medals and six foreign ones over the course of his career. There were three biographies written of him after his death, the early writing praising him, the later ones revising the narrative a bit. He himself wrote eight books, three of which is diaries, and the other is mainly to do with ornithology. In 1940, a form of bird lice was named after him, the Meinhertz Hainalia. He also became the chairman of the British Ornithologists Club, and the British Museum of Natural History has a room named after him. He discovered, as in shot and stuffed, several species of birds, and eventually he would donate a collection of 25,000 bird specimens including quite a number later discovered to have been stolen, appropriated, fraudulent, as many as up to 5,000 of them. Tags being mislabeled, changed, things like indicating the bird's location where it was found being somewhere else completely, leading to a whole mess of trouble with other ornithologists trying to find the bird and thinking it's extinct because going to the places where they say that Meinhardt's taken found them and all those kind of things. Another controversy that has kind of stuck around Meinhard Hagen is that while he was in India, he may have beaten his groom to death. The groom was the person in charge of looking after his horse and later persuaded fellow officers to declare a plague zone around the groom's house so the crime wouldn't be detected. Don't know much truth to that story. Who knows? He had a temper. He definitely he? had a temper and he was very close to his horse. When another horse of his died, he had it buried in the spot that it died in and put a tombstone for it and everything, so he was very connected to his horse. Meinhard Hagen's diary also claims that he helped the Spanish remove Soviet agents, claiming to have killed 17 of them himself. And finally, in 1957, when he was revisiting Kenya, he encountered a chief who proudly introduced himself to him as he was descended from the one who Meinhard Hagen has shot. He considered it a privilege. He was a breed of people that you don't have anymore. It was a different period in, in, in the history where he was living in. And if you look at his history, you would say, when you come from our aristocracy and you go to these schools, you're expected to certain things happen to you and you expect to make things happen. And we've seen this before in other cases where they want to do something bigger, make an influence, make a difference. And he did. 
you could say that he did in his way, everywhere he went, he was an individual. He decided certain things, made a decision and executed them. He was given the hand to do it. His background allowed him to make these decisions as well. He felt confident he can do it. We're name-dropping here, Churchill and George and prime ministers. But it was this, expected but of that him was, as well. That, that was the people he was mixing with. That's where he, he, went, he went home. He didn't, these are the people afterwards he went and, and sat in the, in, in the clubs with them. And writing his diaries, I'm sure even then he assumed that at some point it would be published because travel diaries and adventure diaries were things that were read by different people, very popular at the time. So it seems only natural that he might exaggerate or romanticize certain well, elements of it. He wants to make it. himself part of the center, meaning that he was in the center of things because otherwise it doesn't make sense. But he was also. I mean, but even he if he fabricated and exaggerated certain things, like meaning Hitler three times and, you know. Or rescuing dames that are in distress. He wanted to show that he's still important, still does stuff. But even if he was in Dunkirk, I mean, okay, this was already, he was old when he was in Dunkirk, already around in his 50s. Late 50s, yeah. 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 So he, was, he wasn't like a young man going to the 60s needed him. even. Anyway, thinking about how many birds he had, I mean, where do you keep them? He wasn't living in a rented apartment and he had a little bit in a cupboard and he had 25,000 birds in a cupboard. So this is a different kind of people, different kind of breed of people. I mean, and, we remember uh, that his family owned banks, right? So yeah. he was a wealthy, came from a wealthy family. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, being married and, and doing these things, there's no room for family life in that kind of life. His wife wasn't galloping around Africa with him or escorting him and going to these places. It was a different kind of life. And I'm sure that, as you said, the horse was uh, more, more the companion than a wife sometimes. Maybe. But uh, more precious probably for the day-to-day -day life. But uh, the things he was involved with showed that he was active and he was an uh, active mind. And he took the intelligence world to, from his point of view, to a different level of seeing the information and thinking how he can change the reality around him by feeding intelligence or feeding information so that the other side reacts. And I think that is something that is different than we've seen up till now. There's a quote by him. Intelligence work is the most arduous game in the world. The essence of success is method, but the essence of method is to be able to watch other people. He understood other people, or at least he predicted certain actions by certain people, and he acted beforehand. Yes. Whether that be with the tribes in Kenya, nipping it at the bud, inviting them there and getting rid of it, whether that be potentially with his wife, whether that be, you know, with the Havasak ruse, trying to fool the enemy to act one way or the other. Or with sending the letter to the Ottomans about the merchants, so then he knew how they would react. In, think about, just think about what does it mean sending a letter to the... Who do you send? How do you send? How do you get the message to him? They sent with money. You know, you can think about it today. So he had to give some money. Who would authorize to give money... To the enemy? To the enemy for a trap. You know, there's a lot oh, of things... Or you go that, to the requisitions officer and you go, wait, you want opium? Uh, yes. What? <laughs> what? And, and you want to drop all the cigarettes? Of, uh, yes. And so, you know, when you look at it, when you start thinking about, okay, what does it mean to do the things he said he did? It, it's a lot of planning, a lot of work into it, a lot of thinking about how you're going to do it, how you approach it. Because if you get caught, then you've actually blown the whole thing. 
So even uh, as you said with the sack, where do you, where are you when it, when you drop it? How do you make it look convincing that you are not captured? That's why it's hard for me to believe that he himself did it personally. But if he did, it's part of his character to be there in the front. I, I wouldn't rule it out. It wasn't maybe the, the first choice, but he felt maybe that he could do it better than others, and probably he could. He was willing to take the chance, maybe being a bit closer to the enemy and allowing them to see him, that others maybe would have been more afraid to do it. So being on the field, being as when you are a manager on the field, usually you allow yourself to take more risks than usually if you have your troops on the field and they need a guidance. And that's the difference between someone who leads someone on the field and someone who is other people who wait for orders and therefore they're a little bit more hesitant. Well, he said, To be a good officer, you must exercise your imagination and be ahead of your men. See? Not behind them. Right. In many ways. In many ways. He also said, In war, nothing is too deceitful. I have a habit of doing the unexpected and the difficult and achieving results. And he did. Yes. He achieved results. That is unquestionable. Where he was, results occurred. He went up the ladder. He went up the chain of command. And all his superiors always understood that this is a dangerous guy. Yes. So they said, even Churchill or Prime Minister George said, okay, this is a clever guy, but hey, make sure he he, he doesn't tell you what to do because it's what I want to do you'll do, not what he wants you to do. So this guy has his own mind and he has his own way of doing things. But he was also a killer. Yes. If we talk about danger, yes. you know, they knew that not only was this a dangerous guy, but this guy was a guy who himself did things. Yes. He liked to kill animals and human beings if they were available. If it was necessary. Yes. I don't know if he liked it. But um, he didn't have a problem to do it. He didn't it have a necessary. problem. I mean, the quote before, you know, when he left Africa yeah. about feeling sorry and all yes. that. Yeah. So we talked a lot about this idea of being a man of the times. Each man judged according to the times in which they lived. Meinhard Hagen, during that time period, was exactly the kind of man that needed to be. Put him into the service today, I think maybe there would be some issues. is a loose cannon. He decides what he wants to do and he does it. Yes, he's daring. And you would say that his operations are costly. Are costly for, for manpower, for time. If you do that, you can't do other things. But as I Sun mean, Tzu said, better to spend money on an act of espionage than a prolonged war, which is much more expensive. And that's why he justified what he did. And But he, he made sure... I mean, we don't know the things he planned to do and didn't succeed because he doesn't write about them. We only know about the stuff he did decide to do and they did work. Maybe there was a, 20 other plots and plans that he did and never worked and he decided not to write them in his diary and they never went down in the history book. But the fact that he was doing these things shows the character of the person and the kind of person you need when you're on the, on the battlefield. Remember, he also was in Germany before, so he understood the German mindset of the enemy that he was yes. facing as well. That helped. He spoke German also as well. We've talked about languages often. He had the, the map-making skills, which and, is very and he was, useful, and he was the tall. memory. And he was tall, so he could always see from, from in advance. We've talked about tall people this season. Yes. You know, this season we've also dealt a lot with, with mysteries and question marks on who was who and what were they really, whether yes. Agent 355 or, you know, Lee. Yes. Questions. What exactly was, you know, or even farewell. Why exactly did certain things happen the way they did? What, what are these question but marks? For me... The importance of, of Richard 
is that it laid the seeds to what happened in the Second World War. Now, it might have happened even without it, but the fact that it happened and it was documented before and it was successful, I think that led to the belief that actually they could pull it off. And this is part of the, the tools that you have in your arsenal as an intelligence organization to go against your opponent. And that's very important. Would you hire him? Not in a time of peace. <laughs> but in a time of war? Depends on what position. I mean, we're not talking about hiring him now. I mean, I'm not looking at it from... He's not... It's a, so the, each man in his time, then would you hire him? Would you use look, him? Look, we're not... He's not, a, he's not a spy, okay? He's an intelligence officer. So we're looking at it from a different... If I hired or not, that's not the point. It's not like he's working as an agent. Or I mean, he did sneak undercover. into that German camp at night and... Okay, but it's part of out. a military operation that you go in and, and do something. So it wasn't like a classic spy story. He was an intelligence officer, head of intelligence, thinking about certain things to do and using other people. I'd be more interesting to hear about okay, the guy that actually delivered the letter to the German in Beersheba or other things. Those are the people that actually were the spies who actually did it. I liked as well the fact that he, maybe he personally didn't interview or interrogate the agents they did catch, if it was in Africa or in the Middle East. But you saw that he had... He was on a hands-on. He was, he was... Oh, he was hands-on. The and wheels he, were always he, turning in his head. Yes, yeah. and, he, and he had the language as well to speak to them and understand. So he took his advantages that he had and put them together and made a career out of it. And you can see he had a long career. Okay, so as a spy master, would you want him working with you? You want people like that working for you, but you always have to make sure that they don't have their own agenda and they take take it forward to areas you don't want them to do it. But you do want people that will be creative thinkers. And he was a creative thinker. You want creative thinkers in intelligence organizations. Would you want them against you? You always have to think you have people like that against you. What do we make of the lies and the exaggerations and embellishments? He's writing his memories and how he wants to be portrayed in history. So you make it a little bit nicer for yourself to be involved in a lot of things, number one. Number two, he probably thought he could do better because he said he knew better than his superiors sometimes or all the time. So obviously when you push yourself and your agenda and when you sum up your life and you say, well, I could have killed Hitler, why, why put it in? means why have it there at all just to, to show that you had the opportunity, that you were there as part of history, that you were part of the, the history book. But the fact that the prime ministers in England knew him and recognized him, I think that says a lot for the guy. It wasn't just someone that no one knew. And things they weren't disputed then. It yes. took many years later for things yeah. to be disputed and, and questioned, at least openly, maybe things. And uh, yeah, anyway, okay, he was devious about his bird and about his passion about birds. But he did... Um, 25,000 and only 5,000 fakes. I mean, still not bad. It's 20,000. You know, why, that's a lot of birds. Why embellish even more, right? You know, he collected, you know he, it's a lot of birds. He still discovered new species. Yes. He still did these things. It's, it's a really... It's a difficult question with him because he did achieve tremendous things. And even without the embellishments, he was very impressive. So why embellish? Why tarnish People, it? People... Uh, complicated. Just to get that extra... Of course people are complicated. Then there's but a whole question a hobby. about his wife as well. Yeah, which is, we had a hobby, and and I think the hobby was a good cover for him for a lot of things he did. I mean, there's the question of his wife also, you know. Uh, I don't want to go in there because uh, it doesn't help us in this story. No, it doesn't help in this story, but uh, it puts question marks 
Okay. It tarnishes a legacy. You talked a lot about acting independently and, and taking independent actions. And we've seen this from other agents and other people that we've discussed. And this seems to be a trend of something that is very desirable, the ability to act independently, to make the decisions and to face the consequences if need be as a characteristic for good people to work in intelligence. Would you agree? Do you want to expand on that? Well, in the end, when you face problems in the battlefield or in the arena where you're facing, you want to have the right people who can make quick decisions and the right decisions, the more important, the right decisions, to solve the problems. Not all the problems are thought of in, at home in your headquarters. Sometimes when you face the problem in the field, you need someone who is able to or get out of the problem or find a solution who's able to make the decision without consulting. And that's when you, the quality of the leadership comes. Because if you have great people, but they, they freeze when they have to make a big decision, or the organization or service does not back you after you made the decision, you make it very difficult for even people who want to make decisions on the field to make these decisions. So there's a double thing here. One, you want the right people to make the decisions, but you want as well that your headquarters understands and respects that the decisions are made on the field are decisions that are made and you don't go against them because otherwise you basically um, stop people from making the decisions when they have to and then they don't make the right decisions. So it's a double thing here. And when you have a person like him, like Richard, who's clearly a person who has an idea what he has to do and goes and executes it, physically executes it sometimes. I mean, you would think, why would he kill his own people? He could have kicked them out, sent them home, you know, give them a proper burial and even liked them. So, you know, it's, it's in today, a decision like that wouldn't go today, but this is different times. So yes, this is, uh, it's important. How the superiors react to information that they get after the fact is very important, as we talked about previously in the Moses episode, to hearing information that maybe is not always the information you want to hear, or even in um, the Gazenko episode about give me certain information, and the people give that information rather than the real information. So the importance of also the institution backing the person on the field, giving them the autonomy and the freedom to be honest with them without facing overly harsh repercussions, but also the freedom to do what needs to be done. Very important. Would you agree with the idea that you need people to make decisions, even if it's necessarily not necessarily the right decision, rather than not making any decision at all on the field? Depends on the circumstances of the operation of what you have to do. So there's one thing is a military operation, and the commander has a decision to make. The other decision is if you are supposed to get information from someone and all of a sudden there's a, an obstacle that wasn't there before, what do you do? So it's... It, it all depends on the mission and what, what cover you're in and what is the big game in the end. On the other hand, if you have someone very senior in the front line or making decisions, if he is caught or compromised, then you lose a lot. Yes. So do you want your best people in the front line that could be compromised? Again, depends how and when. Today's world with the communications, maybe things are a bit different. But those days, there was no communications. It was, you sent someone, he did the mission, and hopefully you got an answer, however it, the, the length of time it took to get the message back or the person came back. 
it was different. Meinhardt's Hagen wrote a little poem, let's call it. They say I'm a quarrelsome fellow. God rot it, how can that be? For I never quarrel with any. The whole world quarrels with me. Do you think it did? No, but he did it his way. We'll end with a quote from T.E. Lawrence of Lawrence of Arabia fame. Meinhardt Hagen knew no half measures. He was logical, an idealist of the deepest, and so possessed by his convictions that he was willing to harness evil to the chariot of good. He was a strategist, a geographer, and a silent, laughing, masterful man who took as blithe a pleasure in deceiving his enemy, or his friend, by some unscrupulous jest as in spattering the brains of a cornered mob of Germans, one by one, with his African knob carry. His instincts were abetted by an immensely powerful body and a savage brain. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't run after someone who's dropped his sack. You never know what's inside it. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussel. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. It really does help. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.